Good morning, Four Corners. What a blessing to uh, go into our time of instruction with a song like that, just being reminded of the glory of the coming of Christ, the, the promises that were fulfilled in the coming of Christ, all that he is to us as Emmanuel, and all that that means for us in our rejoicing, our eternal joy. Rejoicing is the posture of the believer in all of life, and it is the posture of the gathered church. So I pray that you are rejoicing this morning, joy that transcends circumstances, maybe difficult right now for you, but that in your soul, by the Spirit, you can rejoice. Well, today we come to a new chapter in Romans, chapter 14. You can go ahead and turn there if you'd like, chapter 14 of Romans. Believe it or not, we are actually nearing the end of our series in Romans. We are kind of, sort of, on the final stretch. You could say that chapter 14, verse 1, up through chapter 15, verse 13, is Paul's last major section of teaching, his last major uh, discourse on a, a big topic. After that, we get his travel plans at the end of chapter 15. And then in chapter 16, we get that long list of greetings and then the closing and doxology that comes at the end of the letter. But today, we're just going to look at the first four verses of chapter 14. So we will be in Romans for a little while longer, so I don't want to uh, get you thinking we're almost done with Romans, but we are, we are kind of on the back stretch. We're getting uh, near to the end of this series. So the title... I'll go ahead and give you that. The title for the sermon this morning is Welcoming While Differing. Welcoming While Differing. Our text for today functions as an introduction to this larger section. So chapter 14, verses 1 to 4, introduces all that we find from 14.1 up through 15.13. And in this section... Paul is concerned with how believers relate to one another when they differ. How do believers relate to one another in the midst of their differences? Now, differences within the church, differing views and opinions on all sorts of religious matters and other matters is nothing new. We need to see that. We say to ourselves, this is a particularly divisive time. This is a uh, particularly contentious time, but I think we need a a little bit of a reality check. Uh, What we see here is that the church has always dealt with, from the very beginning, even under the ministry and leadership of the apostles and those appointed by the apostles and those preached to directly by the apostles, some of whom were witnesses of Christ's ministry. Even there, we see these differences, differing views and opinions. Nothing new. As though something strange is happening to us. As though we live on an island out here or somehow this is disconnected from the rest of the history of the church. 
And the big call that Paul issues to believers is to welcome or receive one another. That's the big idea. We see that at the very beginning in verse 1. It is to welcome or receive our fellow believers. And we'll see later that this call to receive, to welcome, is particularly to the strong when relating to the weak. We'll talk about this a little more in a moment. It applies to everyone, I think, given the language that Paul uses throughout this larger section, but it is particularly addressed from the get-go to this category of people called the strong. This idea of welcoming brackets the whole section. So 14, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over Opinions, And then towards the end of this section, in chapter 15, verse 7, Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So this idea of welcoming in the midst of these differences is the big idea. It's the big imperative. It is the big call from the apostle and therefore from the Lord himself that brackets this entire section, 14.1 to 15.13. But this idea of welcoming also brackets these first four verses of chapter 14. Brackets them as like a little mini unit. So verse 1, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. And then verse 3, moving into verse 4, for God has welcomed him. So we see how this word functions in this passage. So as I said before, today functions as a little introduction This is an introductory passage to the whole section. It introduces all of it. And the basic principles of everything that Paul is going to say in the larger section is put forward today in these first four verses. The basic ideas, uh, the nuts and bolts that we need to work with in order to understand all of this larger section is presented to us at the beginning in these first four verses, all of which centered on the idea of welcoming while differing. So if you would please stand with me as we read God's word together. Little passage for us today, just read up through verse 4. Chapter 14, verses 1 to 4. This is the word of God, sweeter, sweeter than honey, and more precious than fine gold, much fine gold. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray, ask the Lord's blessing. Let's ask that God would illuminate his word by his spirit uh, and that God would work obedience into the hearts of us, his people. That he would uh, work in us. You know, our, our hearts are naturally hard. 
we are naturally a stiff-necked people. I remember, you know, hearing that as a kid growing up, used often of the Israelites in the Old Testament, a stiff-necked people. Uh, Who among us this morning comes in here as a stiff-necked, obstinate against the Lord, disobedient to the Lord? Let's ask that God would soften our hearts, that he would use the scripture for today to bring real sanctification to us, that we would leave here different than when we came, and that we would reflect the glory of Christ more in how we live and how we think and how we speak because we were here today under the teaching of his word. So let's pray for the Lord's help. Father, we thank you that you are always guiding us. You are our good Father. We are free in Jesus Christ, and we have you as our Father. You do not stand over us as uh, a judge to inflict your wrath, but you stand over us, yes, as Lord, yes, even as judge, but you stand over us as Abba. You are our Father. Adopted we are through Jesus Christ, your one and only unique Son, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Father, we thank you that through Christ we come boldly to your throne room. We come boldly to you in prayer as our Father. Lord, we thank you that though we do not love you as we all, you love us perfectly. You love us uh, without fail. You never step away from your love for us. You are patient and kind and gracious and merciful, long-suffering with us. Father, we praise you for your goodness and your fatherly love. Lord, we recognize that you call us to a life of holiness and obedience, and we want to live unto you in that way. Father, we are by nature in Adam selfish, and we have our passions that we want to fulfill, and we are concerned with how we can go about making ourselves happy in this life. Lord, we thank you that we have put on Christ and put off that darkness that we have been crucified with Christ. And yet, Lord, we recognize that we battle daily against these propensities to love of self rather than love of God and neighbor. So we ask you to help us today. Help us trust as we go through this passage in your fatherly love and therefore in our freedom in Jesus Christ. And at the same time, Father, help us to take seriously the imperatives of the Christian life and to live wholly before your face. God, help us to be impacted in how we love each other. As this text calls us to, Lord, help us to think according to your word, to think biblically, not culturally, from from any particular angle or side, but to think biblically as to how we are to relate to the other, and in this case specifically to the other who is our brother or sister in Jesus Christ. Thank you for your word. Please guide us now, Father, as we go through it. In Christ's name, amen. So as Paul introduces this theme of welcoming while differing, he gives us three introductory items. So he, uh, these are three items that get us into this Bigger topic, and you'll see those there 
up on the screen. Three introductory items. You can write those down if you wish. These are our points for today. So for you kids, uh, try to always highlight that. These are the points. These are the sermon points. Uh, so welcoming while differing. By the way, let me just say a thing. So the, the, the idea of sermon points, uh, they are dispensable for sure. The idea of sermon points is that the title is meant to give us the main idea of the text. Uh, the best that I can try to determine what is the main idea of this text and therefore the main idea of the message. And the points are really just meant to guide us, like, like walk us through their rungs on a ladder or their stepping stones to help us understand the moving parts of this larger idea. And so that's why I encourage all the kids to at least write this down, the title and the points, that at least give you a basic idea of what in the world was being talked about this morning as we gathered. So the three points are or the three introductory items are the people. We see that in verses one to two. And then the pitfalls in verse three. And then finally the possessor in verse four. And these, these kind of all blend together a little and we'll see that in a moment. So let's begin first with the people. The people. For this we're gonna go to verses one to two. So let's read that. Verses one to two. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. By the way, this is not about vegetarianism. So let me just go ahead and put that out there. Okay? Uh, this is a very different discussion. So I'm just going to say that, and that's going to become clearer later, but I'm just going to go get that out. Uh, this is not about vegetarianism in the way that it's talked about today health-wise, environment-wise, or uh, animal-friendly-wise, or whatever. Uh, this is not about any of those things. All right. So here, Paul gives us two categories of people. You could say that these are two groups within the church, two categories, but, but also, I think, probably, it may be less distinct than we would imagine. It's not as though you've got on the left side of the congregation, wherever they are, uh, that there's this group and then the other group sits on the other side. We don't get the sense that that kind of distinct uh, uh, delineation is present. But we do, I think, see these two categories of people and therefore these two groups within the church. And let me just say this to us as, as, we, as we launch out into this. Groups within the church may be unavoidable. All right, let's just be realistic. Groups may be unavoidable, but we should try the best that we can to avoid sex and camps within the church. Uh, if you are understanding yourself as belonging to a particular subgroup, that's unhealthy. We need to understand that outright. Uh, there is one body. There's the universal body of Christ, and then there is the local body. And if your understanding of your own Christian identity is more tied to a sect or a camp than it is tied to the one body, then you're missing the teaching of the New Testament. Something like this, Ephesians 4.3, we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. If you're generating thoughts about camps and sects, subgroups and subcultures, particularly uh, the more refined, you understand, Protestant evangelical reformed faith to be. 
just to use kind of the stream that we drink from. Uh, That is unhealthy to be thinking in this kind of distinct sectarian way. We see this in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 to 11. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. He says, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. No. Let me say this to you. This is a big deal to the Lord. Get that firmly in place. Quarreling, divisiveness, sectarianism. It's a big deal to Christ. It's a big deal to the one who bled and died for his church. It's a big deal to the one who gathers and has gathered his flock and who poured out his blood for his sheep. Not a small matter. Not something to be dispensed with in an effort to uphold other things of great importance. Paul identifies these two kinds of people or two groups as the weak. We see that in verse 1. And we who are strong, which he doesn't say explicitly until chapter 15, verse 1. But that's what he's getting at. That's what, that's what he's describing. So we see the weak and the strong. So who are these people? Who are the weak and who are the strong? Well, there has been much debate on this question, as scholars do. Uh, I read one commentary that said um, there are essentially seven views. I thought, wow, seven? <laughs> but yeah, so I'm not going to sit here and rehearse all of those for you. I don't think that is what preaching is about. But there has been much debate on this question. But the best view, as many agree and as I see it, seems to be that Paul is generally dealing with a Jew-Gentile distinction. A distinction between Jews and Gentiles in general. One important clue, so I want to give you The evidence for this, one important clue is chapter 15, verses 8 to 9. Notice that Paul's been going through this whole section. He starts with this this division between two camps. But then he gets to the end of all of it in verses 8 and 9 as he's come to the end before he gets into his own personal uh, sort of ministry and his own personal travels. And he says... uh, When he gets to the end of the section, he brings it together. I won't give you, I won't quote those verses, but he brings it together by talking about the Jews and the Gentiles all being part of uh, Christ. He talks about their Jews and Gentiles coming together. And I think it's also important that we have Paul's teaching here uh, after Paul has spent all that time in Romans 9 through 11, right? So I think we are, all to, we, we are to understand what we're reading here in light of that large section, Romans 9 through 11. And the near context in chapter 15, verses 8 and 9, tells us where Paul is, is going with all of this. He's going towards unity between Jews and Gentiles. So according to this view, the weak are a group of Jewish believer, believers And maybe some Gentile God-fearers or earlier converts to Judaism who due to their religious scruples or opinions, they avoid eating meat. They eat only 
vegetables. Due to their religious scruples or religious opinions, they eat only vegetables. They refrain from meat. The strong, by contrast, are those who believe that they may eat anything. This would include most of the Gentiles not coming out of a Jewish background, not being raised with the dietary restrictions and the the clean and unclean distinctions. These Gentiles, most of them, though some Jews, including Paul himself. Paul himself, remember in chapter 15, verse 1, refers to himself as one of the strong. So it's not, it's not simply Jews on one side and Gentiles on the other. There's some fluidity here between these two groups. But largely speaking, this, this weak is associated with the Jewish believers and this strong associated with the Gentiles. So what's the problem? Why are some eating only vegetables? Well, we get a clue from the following verses in chapter 14. So verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Okay, so we know this is not just about meat eating. 1 Corinthians 8 is focused on that one issue. It's a little different, the context there. Uh, But what we have here is not just meat eating. We're not just talking about that one phenomenon. We're talking about meat eating also being joined with the uh, observing of certain days. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. These two are being joined together. And then again in verse 21, drinking wine also seems to be an issue. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So we see that three positions characterize the weak believers. It's a, it's a threefold set of positions that have to be held together in trying to determine who these people are. One, they don't eat meat. Two, they esteem one day as better than another, or they esteem some days, certain days, as superior or better to other days. And then number three, they don't drink wine, just taking these in order as we go through chapter 14. A further clue for who these folks are is found in verse 14, where there is the distinction between clean and unclean. And we see this language very much. This is very much Jewish language. And it's not Jewish language of some sort of uh, sectarian group within Judaism. This is mainstream Old Testament Jewish language, the distinction between clean and unclean. So let's pull it all together. What's going on? Well, the weak seem to be Jewish believers who are convinced that they should abide by dietary restrictions and holy days, the Sabbath and Jewish festivals. These are Jewish believers in Jesus Christ who are holding to these special days. They are recognizing one day over another. And they are refraining from certain foods and drink. As with Daniel, this is the reason I had that text read at the beginning. As with Daniel in the Old Testament, since they cannot be certain that their meat or wine is kosher, prepared in accordance with the law, they refrain from it altogether. 
They cannot be sure. Likewise, they continued to think that keeping the Sabbath and other Jewish holy days is an important part of Christian living. They think that these things are important to being a good Christian, to being a faithful follower of Jesus. Now, as I said before, 1 Corinthians 8 to 10 seems to be a little different. Uh, the, the focus there, same idea of the weak and the strong. So the, you see that this has multiple applications. But in 1 Corinthians 8 to 10, the issue seems to be that there were pagan believers who were formerly steeped in idolatry, and they were not eating meat because it had been sacrificed to idols. In their conscience, they simply could not get past the fact that they were about to eat a meat that had been sanctified unto a pagan idol, uh, to Zeus or, or uh, Diana or whoever, and that this particular meat was now unholy. It was, it was not to be eaten, and it was because of their previous pagan background. They were so steeped in that that their consciences were weak and soft to that, so that even though Paul says, look, the meat sacrificed uh, to the idol, it, it really is no big deal. The, the idol is nothing. The idol means absolutely nothing. The meat is fine. Receive it with thanks by, as God's creation. But because they had grown up in that, for them, they just mentally could not get past the fact that this was unholy and that to participate in eating this was to participate in idolatry. And so they refrained from eating the meat. Similar thing going on there, but not quite the same as what seems to be the case in Romans 14 and 15, which, as I said, seems to be focused on this Jew-Gentile distinction. So Paul sees those who hold this position, he says, as weak in faith, weak in faith, because they have not fully worked out the implications of the gospel for their freedom in Christ. That's the reason that he says they are weak in faith. The full implications of the gospel are that we are free in Christ. Not free to sin, but free with regard to these sorts of religious ceremonies and practices. And on account of that, he calls them weak in faith. Now this is important to see. They are genuine believers they are Christians, and that's the reason Paul takes the approach that he does in these chapters. They are believers. They are not looking to these things for salvation. Now, this is really important. It's a really important distinction because remember the tone that Paul uses when he's writing to the Galatians. If anyone preaches to you a gospel that involves keeping certain things or doing certain things, Old Testament things, in that case particularly circumcision, if anyone says to you that you need those things in order to be saved, let them be accursed. So we know that, that Paul's not dealing with people who are thinking like that because if he were, he would be calling those individuals accursed. He would be writing in these chapters as he does to the Galatians. Oh my goodness, have I labored among you in vain? Have you gone after another gospel? Have you abandoned the grace of God in Christ? That's not what Paul says in these two chapters. They are not upholding another gospel. This is different. 
but they are failing to rightly work out the implications of the gospel. They are. And that's the reason that Paul identifies them as the weak. They are failing to see that these dietary restrictions and holy days from the Mosaic Covenant were mere shadows of what was to come. They were mere shadows of what would be fulfilled in Christ. And so we get this kind of language in Colossians 2, verses 16 to 17. There Paul writes, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So these believers, the weak in Rome, in the churches in Rome, steeped in their Judaism, steeped in that Jewish background, but genuine followers of Jesus Christ, those who have trusted in Christ alone for salvation, are nonetheless clinging to, in a way, these mere shadows of the substance. They're holding to the substance, but they're also holding to the shadows. And not in a way that eclipses the substance or substitutes for the substance or eradicates the substance, as was the case among the Galatians. The strong on the other hand, are those who understand themselves to be free. Free with regard to food and drink and days. And once again, this is specifically related to what is going on with the Jewish background. So that's our first point, the people. Just kind of laying that out, understanding who's involved there. And by the way, one of the big reasons that there are differences of opinion, different views on who the weak are, is because of 1 Corinthians chapters 8 to 10. Because you get the same kind of theme there, but in 1 Corinthians 8 to 10, the emphasis is on idolatry, which is not present here. And here you get the mention of days, which is not present there in 1 Corinthians 8 to 10. So that's one of the big reasons why there are differences on this. So our second introductory item to this question is the pitfalls. And for that, we're going to look at verse 3. So look with me there, verse 3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Where we have two groups, two kinds of people within the church, we have two pitfalls. Look, here's the thing. No matter what kind of group you identify yourself with, be assured there are pitfalls. There is no pitfall-less group. There's no pitfall-less persuasion. Uh, there are always pitfalls because we are fallen. And our minds are oftentimes turned to irrationality. And we, we oftentimes are intellectually dishonest. The fall affects our minds as much as it affects our will, our affections. There are always pitfalls. You would think listening to some people that as long as you get this right, you're good. As long as you get that right, you're good. There are always, always pitfalls. 
each group has a danger to avoid. Each group within the church will be tempted to treat the other in a sinful way. That's what we're finding in this, these chapters. Each one tempted to view the other, treat the other in a sinful way. And yes, it is sin. Just make that clear. It is sin. It is sin like sexual immorality is sin. It is sin like not paying your taxes is sin. It is sin like all the things, the opposites of the things that we saw in chapter 12 of Romans is sin. To treat the other in this way is sin. Understanding it as sin raises the seriousness that we have in fighting it and it helps us not to be deceived by the evil one into redefining it. Notice here that Paul is less concerned, this is important, very important. Notice here that Paul is less concerned with making the weak strong. He's less concerned with that. Less concerned with making the weak strong in their positions and practices than he is with unity in love. That's Paul's focus. And and you might be reading this and think, Paul, get them, they're weak, they're weak. You got to make them strong. They're off. There's error here. Not quite right. You got to get them right, Paul. That's not where Paul's mind goes. That's not what he spends two chapters writing about. Of course, the desire is present that the weak may be strong. Of course. But notice where Paul's focus is. Unity in love. So I just asked you this question. Is that your posture? Are you more of a got to right all the wrongs kind of person? Or are you more of a unity in love kind of person? Is it more important that people be right or that people be loved? Well, we know that there are various levels of understanding. There are various levels of what we hold to be true. And we we obviously know that there are certain non-negotiables and that we kind of move outside of that center. But what we're talking about here are these non-essentials. And you might be reading this and thinking, man, I mean, those seemed pretty essential. Even these things for Paul are non-essentials. As the Puritans would say, matters of indifference or the Reformers. Matters of indifference. These are not issues for which to break unity and love. How much more masks, vaccines, and justice language? How much more than these things? Isn't it sad? Isn't it sad how easily we walk away from God's truth? from God's teaching. So let's look at each pitfall, each of these pitfalls. First, the pitfall for the strong. What are the strong struggling with? Or what are the strong in need to avoid? We've already seen that such a person can fail to welcome the weak brother. 
that's where it begins in verse 1, welcome him. So we know that's part of the pitfall is he or she can fail to welcome the other. And we've also seen that even if he welcomes him, he can fall into the trap of welcoming him in order to cure him. Come on over here, brother. Let me get you straight. Let me straighten you out. Pat him on the head. Give him, you know, a few book recommendations. Welcoming him in order to cure him. To cure him of his error, but he's wrong. He is wrong. Look, look at this text. Look at that text. Look at this text. Look at that text. Look at that text. Look at that text. Look at this theology. Look at this teaching. He's wrong. I got to get him straight. I got to straighten him out. I got to make sure he's got all these things right. Or I'm not doing my job as his or her brother or sister. No. Verse 1, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Of course, one should desire that the weak become strong. Of course. That the full implications of the gospel be realized by all of God's people. That's a worthy desire. That's a worthy pursuit. That freedom in Christ prevail. It's wonderful. But we are not to receive or associate with our brothers and sisters with an aim to highlighting and correcting their wrong views. Rather, we are to embrace them as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And here's the thing Paul will go on to say at the end of chapter 14, and adjust our behavior in accordance with our relationship with them. Isn't that the exact opposite of what we might think? Not to stand over them and make sure that they have all these things right, all the T's crossed and the I's dotted, but rather, in light of uncrossed T's and undotted I's, we adjust our behavior and we sacrifice some of our freedoms. Whoa. You're not going to find that in the world. You're only going to find that in a book with a Christ who hung on a cross and who calls his people to bear their cross as they follow him. And now, in verse 3, Paul identifies the major pitfall for the strong. So we've already gotten a sense for this, but here in verse 3, we get the pitfall for the strong. He says, let not the one who eats, that's the strong person, eats whatever he likes, pork, whatever. And, as we'll go on to see, sees all days alike. The strong person, understanding full freedom here in Christ. The shadow nature of all of that, let the one who eats not despise the one who abstains. This is to look down on with contempt to view as foolish or immature, to treat as second-class Christians, to mock and poke fun at. It means to show by one's attitude or manner of treatment that an entity has no merit or worth. This is disdain. Like I said, it's like patting them on the head. 
It's like seeing them as some silly child. Doesn't have their theology quite worked out. You'll come around. You'll come around. This is looking down on one another due to differences in non-essential religious matters. Second, the pitfall for the weak We see that also in verse 3. It's not just the strong who mistreat the weak. So let me say this. It's not as though the weak are just this defenseless uh, little victim over in the corner, being left out in the cold, not being welcomed in and invited and embraced, being looked down upon, mocked. No, it's not just the Strong who mistreat the weak and need to welcome them, the weak can do the same to the strong. And the indication here is that was very much happening in the, among the Christians in Rome. The pitfall that Paul identifies here is judging. It's amazing to hear unbelievers uh, refer to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Don't judge lest you be judged. Well, there's a relationship between Jesus' words there and what we find here. The way the world uses it is that uh, Christians aren't to call anything evil. Christians aren't to uh, make any kind of discerning proclamation about right and wrong in the world and in people's lives. Well, that's false. That's not what Jesus was saying there. And I think what Jesus is saying there is related to what we find here in Romans 14 and 15. The pitfall here is judging. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. This is the person who says, no meat for me, please. Just give me some veggies. This is the person who says, no, this day's holy. And that day's holy. And that day's holy. It's unlike those other days. This day is special. While the strong are looking down on the weak, making fun of or dismissing them for their excessive scruples, They're so conscientious, so anxious. The weak are judging the strong as less faithful Christians. Not the real deal. Less devoted to Christ, less committed to purity and discipline and all the rest. Fill in the blank with your virtue of choice. Just not quite, mm, you know, strong. That's the irony there is that they are the strong. And that's the funny thing. They're seen as not the strong believers in Christ. But the irony is that uh, the Lord, through the apostle, declares they are actually the stronger. It's the irony here. Paul says this must be avoided. This must be avoided that the weak judge the strong. But he gives a clear answer why, and that brings us to our third point as we finish up this morning, welcoming while differing. We've looked at the people, we've looked at the pitfalls, and now we come finally to the possessor in verse 4. But look at the end of verse 3. We're going to take the end of verse 3 along with verse 4. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. You know, I love this verse. It's, 
It really is a kind of a smack in the face verse. Paul does this a lot. He's, he's a rhetorical genius in, in many ways, the way that uh, he writes and the way that he uh, comes at his opponents. We saw that throughout chapter 9 in particular, but we saw it in chapter 6. We've seen it all throughout the letter. But this verse puts the judger in his or her place. There he is, acting as the judge over the conscience of his or her brother or sister. There he is, pulled up his tunic, sat on his judgment seat, and there he is rendering judgment over his brother or sister. Well, they need to serve Christ better. You know, we'll pray for them. We'll pray for them. Well, of course, that's wonderful. We should all be praying for each other all the time. But it's that kind of, I'll pray for you, that kind of contemptuous, disdaining, sort of arrogant, I'll pray for you. It's that sort of thing. They need to serve Christ better. They should really be doing this too. I can't believe they would do that. They should follow what I'm doing. Pride. Pride. And pride is the problem on both sides, by the way. Pride and a lack of love. How those two things destroy the church of God. How they tear apart Christ's holy church. In all of this, they are playing the role of judge. And even worse, they are playing the role of owner or possessor. They are judging their brother or sister in Christ as though that person belongs to them. That's the irony. They would never say that. They would never, they would never say, uh, you belong to me. I am over you. I own you. I possess you. And therefore, I render judgment over you. They wouldn't say that intellectually. But what they are doing functionally is attempting to take ownership of their brother or sister in Christ. Which they don't have. Paul's response reminds this human judge, of the gospel of God's grace in Christ. His response is threefold, and it reminds them of the gospel. And this is interesting. By the way, such teaching would inevitably have had the effect of helping the weak to move towards greater strength. Notice how Paul pastorally cares for, for these believers. He doesn't just outright attack the weakness of the weak. He understands that the Lord is sovereign in giving faith, the measure of faith that God has assigned. Remember that back at the beginning of chapter 12? That God, all faith comes from God. All strength, all sanctification comes from God. It's by his grace. So he could jump in and blast the weak, or he could simply address the weak and the strong in such a way that highlights the truth of the gospel of God's grace in Christ and thereby instruct the consciences of the weak so that they are grown out of their weakness into Christian strength. That's what Paul does here. Pastorally, apostolically, he guides the people to strength. But here he gives this threefold response to the judge who would try to own his or her brother or sister. First, his first, the first part of this threefold response is that God has welcomed him. This brings us back to the greeting 
Remember the greeting of Romans? The very beginning, chapter 1, verse 7. You know, how Paul greets the Christians in all of his letters, and all the apostles for that matter, how they, agree, how they greet the Christians in their letters tells us a lot about who we are. Uh, these are very important passages because they, they instruct us as to how God sees us in Christ and how we ought to see one another. And in verse 7, we get a lot of rich language there. Paul says that they are loved by God and called to be saints. That's who they are. The weak and the strong in these conglomeration of house churches in Rome, all those people that he mentions in chapter 16, they are loved by God and called to be saints. Munching on veggies or a big piece of pork. Loved by God, called to be saints. Staying indoors, resting on the Sabbath, out working in the marketplace. Loved by God, called to be saints. They are Christ's. They are welcomed by God. And it brings us back to justification by faith alone. That's what's at stake here, ultimately, as we think about judging our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because it, judgment and justification all come from the same root idea. To be justified is to have moved from judgment. Now, it's not to say that we won't stand before God's judgment. We find that at the end of, of uh, next week's passage, as we come to verses 10 to 12, we find that we will stand before Christ. We will stand before the judgment seat of God. But it is to say that we have passed from death to life. We've passed from being under God's judgment, the judgment of his just wrath against sin. We've passed from that into eternal life. We are now justified by faith. These strong believers are right with God. That's what Paul is saying to the weak. Brothers, brothers, those believers are right with God. They are right with God by faith in Christ. They are, as chapter 3, verse 24 says, justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Guess what? Period. Period. Don't judge your brother. Fail. Don't fail to welcome him. Don't judge him. Because God himself has already welcomed him in Christ. So that's the first part of Paul's response, his threefold response. God has welcomed him. Secondly, we see Paul saying that God owns him. The Christian belongs to God. Who is one Christian? Who is one Christian to judge the servant of another? That's what Paul says. Even more, to judge God's servant rather than leaving that up to God. Notice this. It would be bad enough, you know, in the Roman world, there were slaves and there were masters, and it, it would be bad enough on a human level, on a human level, to judge the servant of another master. Well, it's not my, that's his servant. Not my servant. That would be bad enough. That would be presumptuous enough. That would be arrogant enough. How much more? To, as it were, knock God off of his throne, to knock God off of his place as master and jump on over there in God's place and try to own God's servant. That's what Paul is saying. 
Romans 8, verses 33 to 34, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You need to understand this, Christian, weak Christian, as you're making your judgments on the strong Christian to use these two identifiers here in these chapters. You are making a judgment on the one for whom Christ, the risen King of glory, stands at the right hand of the Father, constantly interceding for that person by name. You are making judgments on the one who, for whom Christ died to remove their condemnation. God is the possessor. That's the reason for the point, the possessor. God is the possessor. He is the owner. We are his servants. We belong to and are accountable to him alone. And remember, this is with regard to these non-essentials, these religious scruples, these ceremonies and practices associated with religion of the Jews. Third, God will uphold him. So God has welcomed him. God owns him. And finally, as we finish up this morning, God will uphold him. Paul says that it is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Who is in charge of the standing and the falling of any Christian? The Lord. And we are assured that we will stand. Remember the way Romans 5 opens and the way Romans 8 closes. Think about that for a moment. Romans 5 to 8 is a section. It's a section about assurance in Christ. It's a section about confidence in Christ. It's a section about identity in Christ and life in the Spirit. That's what Romans 5 to 8 is. Well, notice how Romans 5 opens and how Romans 8 closes. So the beginning of Romans 5, therefore... Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we, here it is, stand. This grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Christian, you stand in God's grace in Christ. Christian, your brother, your sister stands in God's grace in Christ. And then remember the way Romans 8 closes. You guys remember this. It's on the loftiest language in all of Scripture. We have it up there on, on the wall. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God will welcome, God has welcomed him. God owns him and God will uphold him. So do you see how this governs the way we relate in church? Church is not just some kind of social thing where we gather. It's not just some sort of place for instruction. It's it's not some sort of... uh, a crutch that we lean on socially so we can have meals when we have babies and when we get sick and so that we can have you know, small groups to go to and our kids can have friends to play with because they're homeschooled or whatever. That's not what the church is. 
The church shows forth the glory of Christ. And how does the church show the glory of Christ? When Christians treat one another well. So important to the Lord. So important. So the next time you get all riled up about an issue, the next time you get all riled up about what you know and think to be right, next time you start discussing your opinions, remember these words. Remember how we are to welcome while differing. And remember how we are to keep our pride at bay and accentuate our love for the other who belongs to King Jesus, who himself or herself will stand before King Jesus. So how about this? Let's let Jesus do his job. Okay? He finished his work. He did well, perfectly well. He pleased the Father. He can handle this. We don't need to take his place. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We ask that you would help us to work out in practical ways what it means to love each other well. God, you are so glorified through a church where love abounds. Not the kind of sentimental ignoring of truth kind of love that this world upholds, but the kind of biblical love that we find in these pages. Lord, help us love your truth and love your people. And help us love your people because we love your truth. God, thank you for this time together. We ask that you would bless uh, the Lord's Supper as we come to it now. And Lord, even as we do the Lord's Supper, that that our, our minds would be drawn to our identity together. As covenant people, we're in covenant with you and therefore we're in covenant with each other. We are one in Jesus Christ. And particularly here at this local church as we've covenanted together, those who are members here, Lord, we've, we've made this very specific covenant to serve and be served and love and be loved by this local body. Lord, we pray that that would increase here. And those who have not become members, Lord, maybe have been attending for a long time, Father, I pray that they would give thought to this, what it looks like to really commit to the people of God, to really uh, pledge and covenant with a local church, to fall under the authority of the elders, to, to live alongside of their brothers and sisters in Christ in a pledged, committed way, bearing one another's burdens. Father, I pray for them. I pray there, there's any here this morning who are hearing this, Lord, and they've been attending for a long time. They're not members. Lord, I pray that you would, would help them and guide them. Lord, help them come forward and talk to us so that we can walk through this with them so that they would come to an understanding of the church, better understanding of the church and what it means to covenant with a local church. Would you guide us now as we celebrate communion? In Jesus' name, amen.